From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. As the nation confronts a crippling pandemic, we find ourselves drawn to history for parallels. History provides context for the confusion. Today's guest has dedicated her career to exploring those connections. Dr. Marion Moser-Jones is a social historian and ethicist of public health who studies the way in which Americans care for other Americans and how that shapes our response in emergencies like the current pandemic. Stay calm, we'll get through this and we'll learn how on this week's PreserveCast. Hey, this is Nick Redding, the host of PreserveCast. And before today's episode, I want to ask you to consider making a quick donation to support the program. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization. And during difficult times like these, every dollar helps. Your support keeps us on the air, making the case for the value, relevance, and importance of history in our lives. And we all greatly appreciate it. To make a donation, you can visit PreserveCast.org and hit the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the page. Thanks for all your help, and keep on preserving. Now, let's get back to the episode. Dr. Marion Moser-Jones is a social historian and ethicist of public health at the University of Maryland School of Public Health, who explores the institutionalization of benevolence in the United States. Her research examines how and why the American institutional sector has developed to provide for the health and survival needs of families, children, and other vulnerable populations in crisis situations, as well as how it's exercised the power to decide what is best for people's health and well-being. Jones' first peer-reviewed book, The American Red Cross, From Clara Barton to the New Deal, was published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2012. Jones teaches undergraduate and graduate courses on family health, the history of public health, and on the history and practice of the human services. She received her PhD and MPH degrees in sociomedical sciences from Columbia University and her AB from Harvard College. She studied the history and sociology of science as a 2010-2011 DeWitt Stetton postdoctoral fellow at the National Institutes of Health. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're very excited to be joined by Dr. Marion Moser-Jones, and we're going to be talking about all things healthcare and the history of how Americans have cared for people, particularly during crises um, like that, which we're going through right now. Um, And just really excited to dive into this and talk about the research that you have done over your career. So it's a pleasure to have you with us here today. Um, I thought maybe we would jump in and sort of talk about how you got into this. Um, You have a fascinating and sort of complex research interest, which we're going to talk about. Where did your passion for history come from? Was there a moment that sparked the interest? Did you always want to be a historian? How did that all come together? Uh, Well, thanks, Nick, first for having me and uh, to your listeners. Um, so I'm not one of those people who was was destined or felt like I was destined to be a historian from from childhood. Although if you look at um, my childhood environment, you might say that that was probably um, a possibility. Um, my mother actually uh, was uh, very involved in historic preservation when I was a kid and um, volunteered at. Uh, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri which itself is a uh, a very, I would say it's a historic city, but of course so many cities are historic. It's a city very conscious of its own history. And I think at the time in the 1970s was trying to reshape its own history um, in some ways and in the 70s and 80s. And um, my mom volunteered at the Eugene Field House, which which is one of probably the most, the oldest, um historic museums in the country or it's the oldest one in st louis it's in downtown st louis and eugene field's father was the lawyer um roswell field was a lawyer in the dred scott case so he represented dred and harriet scott and their children in 1853 when they sued for the freedom of course they didn't win um we know you know justice taney um speaking of maryland history you know uh, block that. But um, 
Uh, Eugene Field was also a children's poet, so it was something that maybe I was supposed to like going to, and because there were, he wrote a poem, Winkin', Blinkin', and Nod, and they had Christmas every year, um, historic Christmas with the, the old Christmas trees with the, the candles on them, and I remember that, but honestly, it was one of those things that my mother just, you know, took me along to. Um, my mother was also the um, director of development later at the Missouri History Museum, which has the largest collection of Lewis and Clark um, artifacts and, and also just a lot of history of, of, of Missouri. So I was exposed to that. But again, I was more interested in other things. I was interested in biology. I was interested in um, current events, you know, international relations, um, did Maui UN and school newspaper and all that. Um, and I was interested in art. So I had all these interests and none of them really were focused on history because that was sort of my mom's thing. Thing and historic preservation. Um, but again, I think I took it for granted that everyone valued preserving the past in buildings, in historic sites. It was just something that I a value that I was grew up with. So then, you know, I discovered that everyone doesn't value that. So that, that sort of, you know, uh, made me much more interested in, in history and its importance. Um, and then um, basically I became um, a health and science writer, uh, a, a journalist. Um, again, I was more interested in these other issues in, in um, current events, uh, science, health. Um, I worked, I, I wrote for a number of publications, uh, ended up at a place called Genome Web, which really focused on um you know, the Human Genome Project, which is sort of history in the making and, and its implications and genomic uh, revolution and systems biology and its health implications. And so I did that. Um, I'd also taken a bunch of history courses in college. I loved history. It's just I didn't see myself as a historian. I saw myself as more current events engaged person. And, uh, and it wasn't until um, I went back to school to get a degree in public health um, because I thought I'm a, I'm a health science writer who doesn't have an advanced degree in a scientific discipline. And I felt like public health was where my interests lay. Like how did uh, all of this new genetic and genomic and biological um, science uh, relate to, you know, pu the public's health, to people's health and preventing disease, right? Um, and so uh, I went back to Columbia University part-time, got a master's in public health, took a course there called the History of Public Health, or it was the Social History of American Public Health with Dr. David Rosner. And David Rosner has been very involved uh, during his career in actually looking at the lead paint and where did uh, the history of, of the lead industry and lead's effect on children, which is, of course, a very Maryland issue, unfortunately, with Baltimore being one of the cities that's had um, a lot of lead paint in, in its um, old buildings. So, um, you know, I became interested in history because I, I was able to see that it mattered today so that David Rosner and some other historians I was interested I was introduced to um, did urban history they did history um, that could enlighten us on some of the social issues um, and scientific issues that we face today and some of the health issues so that's how I became interested but sometimes you just you become interested and then um, it, you sort of fall into it and, and you become so absorbed in it that, you know, you, you, you almost um, forget about where you started. And I did, I was one of those people who then, you know, did my dissertation on the American Red Cross. I started out thinking, I'm going to look at case studies of disaster relief and institutional history and disaster relief. So, you know, how did this major volunteer institution became so involved in disaster relief and how did it, you know, what did it do? What was effective? What wasn't effective? Almost like a case study and lessons learned, the kind of policy-focused history, not necessarily history for its own sake. But once I got to the National Archives and the Library of Congress, and I started uh, getting into the, the archives, I had to start at the beginning. 
And where do you start at the beginning with the Red Cross? Well, you start with Clara Barton. Right. And you start with her, yeah, her handwritten letters, her diaries. And so that's that's what made me, to me, a real historian and not just, um, say, a public health policy scholar who's interested in history is, you know, when I became completely absorbed in Clara Barton's world and in that world of the Civil War era and post-Civil War era U.S., and um, almost lost touch with my current <laughs> world. You right. Know? And, it, and it's, it's interesting because uh, you, do, you do come at this, which I think is really helpful for moments like this, from this kind of perspective of the relevance of history. I think a lot of times yeah. history is done not always, but oftentimes can, history can be done just for, for the sake of history. Like, let's just document what happened. Let's let's tell a story about what happened. But I think the work that you've done, particularly right now, speaks to, you know, what, what lessons can we learn from what we did in the past, particularly during crises, during public health crises? Um, and it is interesting that you came at this from a different perspective or perhaps a different path than um, a lot of historians where it's sort of just like that, that you know... Um, bachelor's degree, master's degree, PhD, and, you know, you sort of immersed in academe. Um, and, and this is a little different path, which is interesting. So let's talk a little bit. I mean, I think you gave us sort of a little um, tease of, of where you headed with your research, but you specifically study, and, and this is where the Red Cross comes into this, how you describe it in your bio is how and why the institutional sector has developed to provide for the health and survival needs, particularly in crises. Um, mm -hmm. so for people who maybe aren't familiar with us, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. So mm -hmm. to start, how do you define the institutional sector? What is, what does that mean? What's the institutional mm -hmm. sector? Yeah. So that's sort of the official, uh, academic language in my bio. So what I would say is, you know, institutions, um, especially in the U S it's not, you don't just have the state, you don't just have the government and the people. We have had throughout our history this rich sector, this third sector. It's, it's the third layer in the cake. Uh, I'm sure there are other layers, but third major layer. And it's these non-governmental institutions or institutions that have some connection to the government, like the American Red Cross, um, and, or they can be, you know, like um, healthcare organizations. I mean, right now, um, the healthcare sector is in this institutional sector. So it's organizations that are often have some connection with the formal government, but don't necess aren't necessarily you know, the federal or the state government. It's not individuals, but often these institutions start out as really small uh, bodies that are formed by individuals, like the American Red Cross, you know, founded by Clara Barton, uh, you know, in Washington, D.C. in 1881 with just a few other people, but then, of course, connected to this set of institutions around the world. So, and then it grew into um, an organization. And when, and I think something um, evolves from say a collection of people, you know, let's say uh, with this pandemic, you know, we have people doing food drives, getting improvising uh, organization to do a food drive or to do a clothing drive to help their neighbors. Something becomes an institution when it isn't just about one person or a small group leading it sort of as a temporary stopgap solution, but when it has a set of norms, a set of sort of values and a set of practices. And so the American Red Cross, you know, started out as Claire Barton's project. It connected to existing institutions in Europe and, and, and um, Middle East and then in Japan, but then really became an institution in the early 20th century when Claire Barton passed it on to the next generation. And it was more, it wasn't just about one person. It was about um, a group of people, a set of norms, a set of values. You know, today we would say like a mission statement. Right. They didn't say it then, but that, that idea. And then these established practices, this idea sort of, you know, we're the Red Cross. This is what we do. You know, we show up at fires or we show up at disasters and this is our our role. So, you know, the healthcare institution, because we haven't had a strong 
uh, government involvement in healthcare in the 20th century. Like a lot of other countries, you know, Canada got med what they call Medicare in the 60s. Um, Great Britain got the National Health Service, you know, which was in its current form after World War II. We don't have that. So instead, we've developed this patchwork of institutions, which are some of which are totally private for profit, but most of which are serving the public good, often nonprofit, often connected to government entities like Medicaid and Medicare or, you know, uh, or just government regulators. Um, but which are that that third sector. And so, uh, and you know, it's it's an interesting way to do to serve the public needs. So that's my my focus is sort of like I was interested. How did that happen? Why did that happen? And and then most importantly, like, what does that mean for the way that services are delivered to people that meet people's needs are met in crises, like in a, you know, if you have a tornado or a hurricane um, or even a house fire, or in this case, we have a pandemic. So what does that look like? So um, let me, let yeah. me ask this. I mean, um, and I, obviously uh, a life's work could be dedicated to this, the answer <laughs> for the question I'm about yes. to ask. And that's, that's what you're doing. Um, but how unique is this to the United States? I mean, you, you called out some other examples of other countries and how because they have, you know, what you maybe you refer to as socialized medicine or government medicine, whatever you want to call it, th- that, you know, it's it's a different situation there. Has the this institutional, and you also use this term benevolence, sort of the benevolence mm-hmm. of all of this, has has that changed the nature of that in those countries? Is it is it unlike what we would see in the U.S. today? And, and were they similar to us prior to that? I mean, are we kind of where they were previously or how, how does that sort of shake out? Where, where do, where does America fall in all of this? Yeah. I mean, I think, so I wouldn't say we're unique in that, you know, there are other, many other countries that have um, vigorous sort of third sectors. I mean, what you call civil society organizations. And even with the Red Cross, I mean, you could say, you know, the New Zealand Red Cross was very active, for example, uh, in response to the Christ church shooting. And I, I got to meet someone from the New Zealand Red Cross last summer when I was in Switzerland at the Red Cross uh, Federation. And so like, you know, I, and I met people from all different countries, Red Cross organizations that do all kinds of work for the public good. So I'd say in that case, we're not unique. Um, and in healthcare, we're also not unique in that there are other countries. I mean, I think Germany and France both have, um, it's not necessarily national health service run by the government, right? Um, they have different systems where um, uh, there's there there's reimbursement uh, there are reimbursement scenarios from the government for uh, individual practitioners. So, uh, you know, um, and there are other countries that have similar models. So there are many different models. I think um, for a developed country, meaning a wealthy country, we are uh, unusual. I, I hate to say unique because someone's always going to pull up some other country, but um you know, uh, we're really unusual in that we don't have sort of all of for for healthcare and for public health. It's not as organized under an umbrella uh, of the government. Now, now, I would say, I mean, for public health, we have the Centers for Disease Control, but there's no um, the Centers for Disease Control doesn't, for example, you know, it's not like the top tier in a hierarchical. Um, organizational chart with all the health departments under it, you know? Right. And I think that's a little different. And I was going to say, I feel like to jump in here for a second, I feel like we're, I mean, if, if Americans didn't know that or didn't understand that previously, I feel like we're all getting a, a lesson in the bureaucracy mm-hmm. and the administrative state right now in the sense mm-hmm. that it is not terribly organized and you, no. might, you might even argue it's disorganized uh and we're, yeah. we're getting a sense for that right now where these these decisions devolve and sort of federalism comes into play but i mean it, it really is this sort of legacy of where we were and the fact that we haven't sort of evolved out of that i mean there, there is some disorganization what's going on right now i guess a polite way of saying it yeah there is i mean i would say federalism definitely has come to the fore and and i think in non-emergency situations Federalism is something that we in 
health policy, you know, people debate, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, the, the famous, uh, I think it's, is it Louis Brandeis? You talk about, you know, the laboratories of democracy, right? The, um, you know, that each state can come up with its own ideas. And even with, for example, you know, the Affordable Care Act that was pi- pioneered or piloted in Massachusetts. So you can make an argument for why federalism in non-emergency situations can be a positive uh, force in terms of, you know, um, healthcare innovation um, or the HMO managed care, which got a bad rap, but was actually about bringing healthcare costs under control and starting to organize it. You know, it was pioneered um, in, in um in uh, Minnesota. And, and um, so there are different, you know, examples of that. But when you come to an emergency, I think the thing about a crisis or an emergency is that you need rapid coordinated action. And the American Red Cross struggled with this. I mean, this is something they started struggling with in the, the um, 1918 flu. And uh, they actually were able to be pretty coordinated because they were on a wartime footing. So no one saw this as threatening to, you know, our, our federalism. Uh, American Red Cross chapters around the country were already very well organized under divisions and under national headquarters. So they had a great organizational chart and they had ways to rapidly communicate because they were doing this to support the war effort. You know, group of troops is going to be mobilized in uh, Chicago. So they need to send these Northern Illinois, uh, you know, volunteers to the Chicago train station to send them off. So, or, you know, they really, they need to ship out refuge garments for refugees or bandages for a base hospital and they need to get them to new york because the ship is going to leave you know two days from now i mean they were very organized in that way and so when the flu pandemic came along um the um Surgeon General, the U.S. Public Health Service, contacted the American Red Cross and said, we need you. We don't have a huge public health infrastructure. We need to take advantage of these thousands of chapters that have um, developed in response to the war and uh, mobilize you for flu response. And so in, in some ways, they were better prepared then than we are now because there was this wartime organization of this institutional sector. Um, Right now, the public health service is there and the CDC is there, but they can't sort of mobilize this, you know, um, structure that is so well, um, you know, coordinated, right? So that actually might be a good place for us to kind of pivot to the conversation about 1918, since we're kind of getting into that. But before we do that, we'll take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about this current crisis and similarities to what we've gone through before. And we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Rachel Carson, the voice of the early environmental movement, read by Megan Bacco, Director of Communications at Preservation Maryland. Rachel Carson is considered to be the mother of the modern environmental movement. In 1929, young Rachel Carson moved to Baltimore from Philadelphia to accept a graduate scholarship from Johns Hopkins University. But her studies were interrupted by the Great Depression. So she went to work for the Bureau of Fisheries, where she received an assignment to write 52 short radio programs on marine life. She also started to write freelance articles about the Chesapeake Bay for the Baltimore Sun and other publications. By 1941, she had been promoted to aquatic biologist at the U.S. Department of the Interior. That same year, she published her first book, Under the Sea Wind. A few years later, Carson proposed an article to Reader's Digest magazine about DDT, 
the first modern synthetic insecticide. The article was rejected for being too unpleasant. Undeterred, she wrote a second book, The Sea Around Us, all about the life-giving and life-sustaining qualities of the sea and our relationship to water. The book sold more than one million copies and won awards, including the National Book Award for Nonfiction. When Carson resigned from her work at the government, she began to write full-time and take on more environmental battles, including, again, against DDT and other pesticides. She wrote that the federal government's use of a pesticide to combat imported fire ants had so much serious collateral damage that it was the agricultural equivalent of the atomic bomb. In her 1962 book, Silent Spring, written at her self-designed home in Silver Spring, Maryland, Carson asked, how could intelligent beings seek to control a few unwanted species by a method that contaminated the entire environment and brought the threat of disease and death even to their own kind? The chemical industry attacked her and her writings. They said that the woman lacked the academic training to be credible. But biologist Edward O. Wilson called the book a national political force that is at least partially responsible for the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency and the passage of the Endangered Species Act. Carson would not live to see the full impact of her work. In the spring of 1964, she died of breast cancer in her home. She was 58 years old. More than 15 years after her death, President Jimmy Carter awarded Rachel Carson the Presidential Medal of Freedom for her contributions to the environmental movement in the U.S. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast. We're joined today by Dr. Marion Moser Jones, and we're talking about public health, the history of the institutional sector in providing services, particularly during crises. And before we took our break, um, we had just kind of transitioned over and we're talking about how the institutional sector works, why it works the way it does, how it is somewhat unusual and the way it's developed and here in the United States, but also kind of moving the conversation towards um, what comes up a lot nowadays, which is the 1918 flu pandemic. So you were talking a little bit about how, you know, the Red Cross then was somewhat better organized and, and was on a wartime footing. So they were better able to respond. I'm curious just sort of broadly, and, and I, we could have a whole episode just on this, but, but what, how similar is the response today to that, um, pandemic? Are, are you seeing parallels and, I guess maybe as a follow-up to that, do those parallels concern you or do they give you hope? Well, I would say, yes, I see large parallels. I mean, first of all, to put on my science geek hat, I, I have to remind everyone that this is not a flu. You know, the, 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 the scientific difference is this issue of it being a, a virus that has this uh, large asymptomatic feature so that many people are... Uh, probably silent carriers, I, I and or at least are asymptomatic, and the flu didn't have that. It doesn't have that. Um, uh, the pandemic flu, though, however, was not like a seasonal flu. Also, so it was it was similar, and then it was something new and deadly, and and it was shockingly. Uh, violent in the way it ran through people's bodies and the bodies of people who were young, healthy adults. It was in Camp Devons in Massachusetts. And you have these reports of a, a doctor who's talking about, you know, um, how you have a young man who's, uh, you know, a healthy soldier and suddenly he's, uh, dead in you know in his lungs they open up the lungs for autopsy and they're just um seem to be destroyed so in that way there are these eerie parallels um the other parallels not just clinically um are just the way that response has been not just federalized but localized you know so even i mean i'm in maryland i'm in now in prince george's county maryland and we have uh, a stay-at-home order that you know, whereas the gover governor has lifted it. Now, I'm sure people who are listening to this, things will change over the weeks and months ahead. But, you know, we have this localized patchwork of response. Same thing happened in the 1918-19 flu. So city uh, and state health departments were uh, responding individually and differently. 
There's a very important um, study by Dr. Howard Markell and colleagues where he looked at, they looked at um, 43 cities and they looked at the response in each city to the influenza. And how many days was it after the first case uh, was reported or the first death reported um, to um, them restricting public gatherings, closing down, um, you know, movie theaters and restaurants and public schools and public transport? Um, and then for how long did those restrictions last? Right. And it varied. It was all over the map. Just like today, we're all over the map. You know, there's some places in the U.S. where there's uh, everything is open for business pretty much. And there are other places that are still fairly locked down. Um, and some people might say, I mean, from an, a public health perspective, that that's there are advantages. Because, for example, in Alaska, for example, there are very few. There have been very, very few cases. So maybe Alaska, with its wide open spaces uh, and very few cases and distance from the continental U.S., shouldn't have the same restrictions that New York has, right? Um, on the other hand, it's been hyper-localized. So, you know, as I said, Prince George's County, Maryland, has... Um, you know, has had a stay-at-home order, whereas you go to Howard County and there's no stay-at-home order. And so, you know, you get in your car and you can do your business. So so that limits the effectiveness. Right. Of and, and I was just going to say, because we, we have listeners all across the country and the world for that matter, you're describing places that are... Uh, that about you know border each other and are yes. 10 minutes from apart from each other right so these are exactly. very that the proximity is 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 very very close exactly places in close proximity i mean and and you know and the same could be said like um you know where i'm from uh, st louis missouri i mean had a, a stay-at-home order but then there were places that were across the river that didn't have that you know across the mississippi river so you know you, again uh, there are many places in the u.s where you could get in your car drive 10 or 30 minutes and um be someplace that doesn't have the same restrictions um and that was true then as well, although, in fact, people had less access to, to cars, right? So cars, there were just so many fewer cars uh, that when they shut down public transportation and they limited train travel, um, which was already sort of prioritized for the war effort, I mean, that could actually um, be more effective. Um but the, the, what I was going to say about the Markel study is that this is a 2007 article. They showed that the cities that acted the most quickly um, and that had the longest periods of, of restrictions on public gatherings and schools and all that um, had overall lower rates of deaths from influenza. And so that's been a use of history right now. I mean, this has been brought to the fore um, by many um, policymakers to say, this is an example of the fact that longer and more restrictive um, actions uh, and, and, and earlier actions is effective in limiting the spread of an infectious disease. Um, and so, so does, do, yeah. are you, I mean, I guess to sort of unpack this a little bit, does that concern you about where we're headed? And then I guess sort of as, as a, an aside to that, um, was there was there a push in 1918, sort of these reopen um, pushes right now? Were were there similar pushes then? I mean, are, are we is history kind of unfortunately repeating itself there as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were pushes. I, I looked at the Baltimore Sun newspaper from um, 1918. I was going back and looking at it. And, you know, um, the the pastors or religious leaders, ministers were writing in and complaining and saying, you know, church has been closed for or, or you know, we've been prevented from having religious gatherings, but the saloons are not completely shut down. So <laughs> why is this the case that we should at least be able to have our gatherings? So I think religious leaders were very, uh, in many places, um, uh, adamant that they should be able to hold uh, public gatherings or, you know, hold services. Um, 
And there was also a sense of chafing, I think after about, you know, a month, even in places like, again, my hometown of St. Louis had um, one of the most restrictive regimes and one of the earliest imposed regimes. You know, even after a month there, you see um, in the newspapers a lot of uh, anxiety and speculation about when are we going to reopen? Um, you know, when are we going to open the schools? When are we going to actually start to have sports again? I mean, even then, sports were very important to a lot of people. Um, the, you know, the college football season, this was a fall um wave of a pandemic so that was very important to people uh to some people and i think you you see that that sense of um uh weariness about restrictions did it focus at all on the constitutional piece that we're you're getting a, a taste of that now where there's sort of this sense that there's somehow this is an you know aberration of civil rights and there's lawsuits associated with that. Did it head in that direction at all? Is there a similarity there? I mean, there were some people talking about that. I mean, certainly with religious leaders, it was implicit. You know, right. the, 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 I mean, the First Amendment, right, has, you know, guarantees us um, freedom of religion. So that was implicit, but it was much less, there was less explicit argument. And the reason is because um, these rights-based arguments, these ideas of civil rights, these are more recent arguments. So the ACLU, I mean, is just celebrating its 100th anniversary, right? And that the ACLU came about in response to um, some Supreme Court decisions where they were um, uh, deporting people and, um, you know, jailing people for um, their anti-war and their their political activities, right? So um, civil liberties became something... Um, it was sort of a, a very talk about institutions, a marginal and small um, cause, <laughs> and that they grew in importance throughout the century. And then, of course, with civil rights movements, um, the African American civil rights movement, but also um, uh, civil rights movements for indigenous people, um, you know, women's rights. Rights are the idea of individual rights became. Um, much more explicit in our public discourse in the, I would say, post-World War, from post-World War II to the present. Uh, and, and, and back in the World War I era, people wouldn't talk about rights um, unless they talked about obligations and duties. I mean, so, you know, the idea is if you were um, going to serve your country, you were doing so because you had an obligation to serve your country. People were much more concerned with quote, doing their bit. Um, and there was much more of a discourse about, you know, are you fulfilling your public duty to your country? And much less of a discourse about, um, is your country allowing you your individual rights? Interesting. Um, That's an interesting kind of com compare or I guess contrast with where we're at today. And, and I'm curious too, given what happened in 1918 and what changed, and I guess what didn't change as well, should we be prepared? Do you, do you suspect, I mean, I know that this is taking off your historian hat and putting on sort of your speculating hat, but um, do you suspect that there'll be a shift in sort of this institutionalization of benevolence moving forward? Are we going to see changes as a result of this? What do you suspect? Well, so it's really interesting. I think a lot of people are engaging in what they call directed reasoning. So there, there are many people in this country, there is already an organized movement for what they call Medicare for all, which takes many forms or, or for, you know, in the democratic circles, the public option, you know, um, making health care universally accessible, uh, but not taking away private insurance versus, uh, and then also the other more um, left-leaning group that says we need to replace our complex patchwork with a federal, you know, a government healthcare system. Um, so there are many people who are proponents of that, who, who I think are hoping that the um, uh, problems that have risen to the surface with this crisis will make it more evident to the public that we need some form of medical Medicare for all. 
But I'm really cautious as a historian in predicting that. I think the only way uh, something like that goes forward is if there's a continued organized movement. And if the people in that movement are able to capitalize on the current crisis and actually continue to afterwards. Um, the, I mean, there are other people who are opponents of uh, this who could also capitalize on this. And people who, as you said, are focused on um, the infringements of their civil rights and their civil liberties and could really also use this, the wake or the aftermath of this pandemic to capitalize on um, calls for for less organization in government and less in you know less organization of institutionalized benevolence or institutionalized you know for healthcare. So I I, I would you know um, I'm cautious about that. I think what one thing we can sort of predict as historians is that. Um, Periods like this, if they're prolonged enough, so I'm thinking about the 1917 to 1920 period, which was the really, to me, one of a piece. It was the war mobilization, which was incredibly fast. The first time we have a draft, uh, we go from, it's sort of like we go from zero to 60 in five seconds. I mean, our country really uh, shifted quickly. And then we have the flu pandemic that is really part of that at the end of that period. After that period, um, consumption patterns changed, tastes changed. And I think, um, you know, there was a change in what they call manners and morals for for women and for uh, in terms of public life. Um, you have the, the roaring 20s. You have, even though you have prohibition, you really have a, a concomitant um, rise in, you know, um, a lot of uh, women going out to saloons, or to speakeasies and um, women feeling more free to actually, um, you know, um, be uh, outside of the house, be, um, you know, dating. I mean, dating didn't really come about formally till like the post-World War II era, but really just just a real a change in the way um, people behave and the way people are consuming products. Um, you know, cigarettes after the after World War One, cigarettes became um, acceptable for women. Shorter hair became acceptable for women. So those those kinds of things I look at and I say we could have a change in consumer behavior after after this crisis. Um, we may not have a change in organizational um, structures unless there's a real uh, successful effort to to uh, marshal the the feelings produced by the crisis or the reactions to bring that about. Interesting. Well, I guess only time will tell and we'll have to have you back, um, you know, in, in, a, in a few years from now and see where we're at and see what parallels continue to be drawn with 1918. Um, so for a Maryland based podcast, and we have listeners, as I said, all across the country, all across the world for that matter, we, but we can't avoid asking you about Clara Barton. You've brought her up a couple times. Um, mm -hmm. She is definitely someone that we love um, and, you know, her sort of her story runs deep here in Maryland from the Antietam battlefield to Glen Echo. Um, so for someone who is listening and maybe doesn't know anything about her, who is she and why does she still matter today? Okay. Well, who, I mean, who is she? I mean, she, she was the founder of the American Red Cross before that she improvised uh, relief on the battlefields in the Civil War for the Union, um, when the Union Army was poorly organized and disastrously supplied, poorly supplied in the early um, battles of the war. And she and her ragtag group um, collected money and supplies from women in Massachusetts and Maryland and uh, literally brought um, wagon loads of supplies to the battlefield at Antietam and several other battlefields. Um, and, and then she would actually volunteer on the battlefield. She did not ever say she was a nurse, but she did that. She volunteered. And then, um, and as I said, in 1881, she founded the American Red Cross. Um, 
you're talking about suffrage this year. She was actually an early proponent of women's suffrage. She was friends with Susan B. Anthony. Um, she, in the Garfield presidential election, she actually showed up at a local polling place and tried to vote. Um, not a lot of people know that because I think her most prominent role was as uh, a provider of supplies in emergencies and an organizer of the American Red Cross. Um, why is she relevant today? Well, I think you see, you see this legacy. I mean, this thing we do, which is, again, I don't say it's uniquely American, but it is definitely a signature American uh, activity where if there's a need and it's unmet, people will improvise and spontaneously organize to meet that need. So we heard about the need for PPE, protective equipment in hospitals. Suddenly there were numerous organizations that people had created to uh, raise money to get um, and to get um, PPE to hospital workers. Is that the most efficient way to do it? Probably not, but it's certainly, again, an example of organized benevolence. Or, you know, as I mentioned, food drives, um, uh, dry, clothing drives. Um, there's, there's massive unemployment now, and there are a lot of people who are suffering and actually going hungry. And so uh, we have, we see this improvised benevolence. And, and I think that's what Claire Barton stands for, this idea that you don't just stand at the sidelines and complain about something that is going wrong. Um, and in the late 19th century, the U.S. government was not um, effectively and efficiently providing for people's needs. Um, didn't Many government officials didn't even see that as a role. And so rather than just complaining about that, Claire Barton did something and organized um, uh, groups of people to actually do that on their own, to sort of you know, go through the red tape or get around the red tape. And that's that's what I think is, is one thing that's remarkable about her. And, uh, you know, again, on the 100th anniversary of suffrage, she did it as a woman who couldn't vote. She was a single woman. Uh, she had been, um, she remarkably had made her money as a, a copyist in the patent office in Washington, D.C. Um, and she was paid the same as men, which was unusual then. She was an early government worker. Um, at times, though, uh, she had to actually work from her house under candlelight because um, her boss didn't um, want a woman in the office. And um, so she had to face incredible odds. I mean, uh, the status of women then was very low. Um, and she um, was incredibly persistent and incredibly creative in organizing um, aid to people who, who needed it. Yeah, I mean, she just really is like a standout American hero that I, I hope more people know about. And obviously, um, you uh, published uh, a, a, a history of the American Red Cross and have done a tremendous amount of research on Clara. I guess it's a good place for us to kind of pivot here and ask um, if people want to learn more about you or they want to purchase some of your books um, or read some of your publications, where's the best place that they can find that? Uh, well, my book, The American Red Cross from Clara Barton to the New Deal is available via all of the online booksellers, I mean, Amazon or Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, I, in terms of my other publications, um, if you go to Google Scholar, you will, some of them are available publicly because I, I had um, federal government funds for them, uh, the research and others, um, you only get the abstract of my writings. Um, I'm currently at work on a book called Finding New Fronts, uh, which is about um, American nurses who served in World War I. And so looking at that um, Red Cross nursing in particular as, as an institution and nurses' lives in relation to that. Um, and I've actually um, started a study of current day nurses who are um, serving um, on the front lines of this pandemic. And I, I'm actually interested in comparing their experiences and their writings to those from nurses in uh, World War I. So if you know anyone who's a nurse, uh, you can email me at moserj at umd.edu and I'm glad to uh, talk to them about the study. Um, but if you um, 
yeah, Johns Hopkins University Press or just any online bookseller. Fantastic. Well, um, obviously, when that book comes out, we'll have to have you back because this was, we could have spent, I could have spent all day asking you questions because this is just so fascinating and, and interesting, again, as we started this conversation to really get a sense for the relevance of, of history and unfortunately how it repeats itself in some cases, and I guess fortunately how it does repeat itself and how um, folks like Clara Barton are important to remember in moments like this, as well as sort of the the everyday heroes um, from those creating PPE to um, you know the nurses on the front line that you're talking about that you're going to be studying. Um, before we leave, the most difficult question we ask of pretty much any guest who comes to preserve cast, particularly um, as you described yourself as the daughter of a historic preservationist and a historian, um, imagine you've been to a lot of historic sites in your day. So what is your favorite historic place or site? Well, I was thinking about this and I'm going to answer about, I'm going to say, what is my favorite one in Maryland? Okay. I have a favorite in Maryland and then I have a favorite globally, but uh, Maryland, I would say the Claire Barton National Historic Site. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because you walk into that house and um, you get a sense of Claire Barton's mind from that house. Just like, you know, um, if you want to remember things, there are memory tricks called creating a memory palace. And I and we remember things and, and our psyches are set up to sort of remember locations. Uh, I think the way she organized her house with uh, where there's really no private space, everything Everything in that house has some relation to the American Red Cross. Um, makes you see that that's that's who she was. I mean, she didn't have a private life aside, a separate from the American Red Cross. She incorporated her family life into the American Red Cross and then the First Aid Association. And I think it's an unusual house for the time, especially the Victorian era, where there was this creation of private family space and bourgeois middle class and upper middle class um, houses. And so I really love that uh, about the house, how much it tells you about Clara Barton and how well preserved it is. And I love the, the park rangers who answer a lot of questions. It's uh, It's been closed uh, for COVID, but there's a great virtual tour that you can take um, online. Um, so the, yeah, so that's my favorite locally. I, lo I love that. I mean, that is a, that's a fantastic answer and um, really kind of makes the case for the value of place in understanding people too. Uh, a, a, a cool connection. So you said you had a global one though as well. Okay. So the global one I would say is Caesarea, which is in uh, current day Israel. It's, it's a Roman era historical site um, from around um, the time of King Herod. And I just walking around the ruins of the baths, the Roman baths and seeing the aqueduct there. And it's along the Mediterranean. Um, you know, it just gives you a longer, a sense of longer history that, that we don't have in the United States, um, uh, except with, I would say, there's some indigenous sites that we have that, where we have that, but um, that was uh, very profound um, to, to visit there. So that's probably my favorite historical site uh, globally. Um, you know, and, and I, there's so many places I haven't visited Right around the world that I'm I'm dying to go to. So well, if we um, if we have you back, we can ask the question again, and you can let us know what your new favorite historic site is. Um, and if, right. if you have many favorites, yeah. I'm sure. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. We've gone from King Herod to Clara Barton to nurses of the 21st century, and it has been an absolute pleasure. So interesting to talk with you um, and get to know you a little bit more and know your research a little bit more. Thank you so much for joining us today, and hope to have you back again soon to talk about your next publication. Okay, thank you so much, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving. <laughs>